listening to Caring for Cleft, an audio series that tells stories of comprehensive cleft care. Caring for Cleft is brought to you by the team at Transforming Faces. It is hosted by Executive Director Hugh Brewster. Each child born with a cleft lip and palate experiences a unique set of challenges. For some, access to affordable treatment is the most pressing barrier, while for others, a long series of surgeries is most daunting and disruptive. A shared experience is visibly standing out from the other infants at the hospital. Even after successful surgeries, children's faces can look different from those of their peers. On today's episode of Caring for Cleft, we turn our attention to the difficulties of living with a facial anomaly, as well as strategies that support families in seeing their children thrive. James Partridge, our first guest on today's episode, grew up in the UK with every expectation that he would lead a normal, successful life. At 18 years old, a catastrophic car accident left him with severe burns that primarily affected his face, and, as it turns out, ended up shaping his life, his career, and his legacy. In 30 seconds, my life changed from being a happy-go-lucky character who's taken his looks for granted and had prized his near-perfect face. And suddenly I realized that that was no longer going to be my lot in life. So that's where it starts from. My expectations about cosmetic surgery were formed by ridiculous TV soaps like Dynasty. And really the assumption I had was, well, you'll get me back to quote normal, won't you? It was probably at least a year and a half before I started to understand that that wasn't going to happen. I was always going to look different. And that wasn't a very comfortable feeling. I can quite easily own up to feeling exceedingly angry with my surgeons and clinical team, which I, I'm not proud of, but I think they understood at the time. And gradually I realized that actually I, I had a very different life track ahead. And yet I still didn't know what that was. And of course, getting a job with a facial disfigurement, oh, wait a second, that's not going to be easy. I was fortunate, I think, and I, I'd also realized after about four or five years that actually what really mattered when I met people was how I communicated with them. And if in the first microseconds of that communication, I was able to impart a lot of me would come across, actually they very quickly didn't see my scars, they just saw me and my interests and talents and what have you. And I think by the time I actually went for a serious job, I'd got that, I'd perfected it. James, your journey to understand how to manage having a facial difference began as you were a young man about to leave home and study at university. As the founder of Face Equality International, you collaborate with organizations that support families where a facial difference occurs at birth instead of through an accident later in life. What have you learned about the similarities between your own experience and the experience of a child born with a cleft lip and palate? Well, I think this is where the similarities between a family experiencing the birth of a child with a cleft 
and somebody who goes through the sort of trauma that I went through starts to emerge. In my case, my family had absolutely no idea about facial burns. None of us had any, any expectation that I would spend the best part of five years in and around a plastic surgery unit in London. I think my parents were of a generation that were extraordinarily stoic, and yet they were also not judgmental to me, really from the word go. They had both come through wartime, Second World War experiences where they had known friends and colleagues and others who'd been badly injured. And somehow that did affect them, I think. They didn't make judgments. They were willing to see me go through this and provide fantastic support without trying to influence me too greatly. I think my sister, my younger sister, who was two years younger, was far more traumatized by the whole thing. And actually, I don't think people really understood that at the time. It was as if all the attention was going to me. Another classic similarity with a child with a cleft. And she felt very left out, very, very difficult time for her. And also, she was so shocked that I was clearly not going to go on that trajectory in life that she and many others had assumed. And indeed, within about a year, it was quite clear to me that there was no way my expectations of what I was going to do were going to be realized at all. In fact, I really didn't have very many expectations. And there's a third similarity. I think in the case of the family whose child is born with a cleft, the expectations of what this child will do and achieve are, are suddenly traumatized. And uh, there is so little knowledge of what's the prospect. And I had no idea what the prospect was. This sense of having dreams dashed and hopes shattered resonates with the experience of many families in low and middle income countries, where the community stigma of giving birth to a child with a cleft can cast a dark shadow. In fact, Dr. Manu, a surgeon and comprehensive cleft care leader at St. Joseph's Hospital in Mysore, South India, reports that families are told that a cleft must be the consequence of having done something truly shameful. There's even pressure to keep the baby hidden from sight. The rural area, if the child is a cleft child, it's a very humiliating uh, period for the parents and the grandparents who are hosting them in their village. Is still the family, the total family is looked upon as they have done something by their own or their previous life or something. Uh, is still that skepticalness is there. This kind of thought process is uh, still persistent and they have to go through all those things. Many patients, they come to me, they have not even revealed that the child is born. They would want to get the surgery done, then they would want to reveal. These are the misconceptions what people have. Surprising things come up, we have to deal with it, and the child has to have a good life. While the context of village life in South India is far removed from that in northern Argentina, social worker Julieta Perondi of San Miguel de Tucumán has also seen how public perception of cleft disadvantages children and families, even when they have access to timely treatment. 
There's the idea that a child born with cleft may have disability, not being able to reach some expected level of intelligence. For example, being bullied makes them shy at the time of participating in their classes or maybe behavioral difficulties or problems. Teachers may relate those things with a disability and it has nothing to do with that. So that's why it's very important to work together with institutions in which these kids are involved or in which kids participate. Julieta, when does the journey of assisting families start? What are the first steps you take? We get in touch at the first moment with the families. Inclusion begins with family. We worked in order to make this family accept this situation, to know about this topic, and to get through this moment in um, the most healthy way. And that's the first step, to help the family accept this kid the way it is, and that this is treatable. Too often, the primary messages parents of a child with cleft hear are ones of limitation. From subtle pressure to keep their children hidden away, to expectations that a child's appearance reveals their intellectual ability, to the hopelessness of thinking that they're all alone. Connection to a comprehensive cleft care team, as well as to other cleft parents, can be a lifeline. Dr. Manu recognizes the importance of combining accurate medical information with that sense of peer support. We make sure that we inspire the parents and give a realistic expectations about how the kids will be. We have a set of patients who are volunteer to talk to the parents of the newborn child. And then we have a family day where uh, we get all the uh, operated kids as well there. So the unoperated kids and the parents will directly see and interact with the operated kids and parents. So that's a game changer. From a supportive family, the next game changer is to equip schools, teachers, and classmates to make space for children with a facial difference to thrive. The families are not the only responsible for this. It's also to involve the community. Schools are a, a proper scenario where we can start to talk about inclusion, including involving people in community because it's one of our principal social environments and has to do with how a child develops. We can work in an interinstitutional way with the headmasters of schools, with professors, teachers, to giving talks, informing about this condition. Some kids, they were bullied. I think teaching kids about this condition makes them realize what it really means. Beyond a scar and a distinctive smile, Many children born with a cleft lip and palate have difficulty in being understood in the classroom. This is a challenge that often requires speech therapy or even additional surgeries in order to overcome. When they are in the school, uh, they are uh, being teased upon, and then speech is a major, major, major thing. And that is a very functional issue. But going towards comprehensive care and speech-related uh, surgeries and speech-related improvements. So with this, whatever concerns what children have told us, this we are trying to tackle in our own way. For James Partridge, his struggle to forge a prominent career amidst community stigma in the UK 
led him to write a book about his experience called Changing Faces, which was published by Penguin Books in 1990. He subsequently founded a prominent London-based charity of the same name. People said, look, psychosocial care for people with any form of facial difference is so undeveloped and you've written a kind of manual for how it could be. What are you going to do next? Gradually, uh, I had the crazy idea of setting up a charity and my wife thought I was absolutely bonkers. So Changing Faces came about in 1992 and I was very proud of what we grew there and I think the psychosocial package of help is a solid set of principles. We also launched this campaign for face equality and found terrific support for it. From there, James's tireless advocacy inspired the coming together of a global alliance of 36 organizations dedicated to pursuing face equality for all. James's life work continues through the important mission of NGO Face Equality International. We mark with great sadness James's untimely passing on August 16, 2020. Though I only came to know James in the past year, I'm honored to have seen him in action and grateful to be able to share some of his insights through this interview. Face Equality International is primarily about trying to influence and change public attitudes, institutional attitudes, the legal protection around people with facial differences, and eventually get to the place where facial prejudice is stamped out, it's outlawed, it doesn't happen anymore. As we've heard from our guests today, there is a lot of progress to celebrate in seeing children move beyond stigma and bias and be able to be fully included in their communities. But we also know there's a lot of work left to be done for James's vision of face equality to be realized from the UK to India to Argentina and beyond. We know that with each story of a child successfully overcoming the limitations of a facial difference in the village, in the school, or even in a global campaign, it becomes easier for the next child to overcome every barrier and pursue their hopes and dreams. Caring for Cleft is brought to you by the team at Transforming Faces. It is produced by Andrea Miller with help from Hugh Brewster, Rachel Weiner, and Tamar Moyle. We're grateful to our guests, Dr. Manu Prasad from St. Joseph's Hospital, a partner of ABMSS and Transforming Faces. We're also thankful for Julieta Brondi from Fundación Gavina, a partner of Transforming Faces and Smile Train. Transforming Faces is a member of the Face Equality International Alliance that was founded by James Partridge. May he rest in peace. <laughs>